Superbrain is a labour of love. Alas, no podcast can survive on love alone. We don't have a sponsor, so we need your support for Superbrain to stay alive and kicking. You can make a one-off donation by following the Support This Show link in the show or episode description. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, my name is Sabina Brennan and you are listening to Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. My guest today is Sinead Moriarty. I have a very clear memory of my first meeting with her. Sinead was sitting on a sofa waiting to go on air as a panellist on a radio show. I was also a panellist on the same show and she and I struck up a conversation while we were waiting to go on air. Sinead is a beautiful woman, a tall, willowy, stylish blonde. You can't help but notice her. But what really makes her stand out is her friendly and welcoming demeanour. Sinead asked me about myself and I had just received the exciting news that an editor at Orion was interested in publishing my first book and I excitedly shared, or probably overshared, the news with her. I can't actually remember whether this was before or after she told me that she has 14 published books under her belt. Anyway, whilst I no longer recall the actual details of our conversation, I do remember that her words to me were wonderfully encouraging and she was incredibly modest about her own achievements. I met Sinead again a few months ago when both of us were appearing on the same afternoon TV show. We were on separate items this time. Um, I was speaking about brain fog and in the taxi on the way back to the train, she shared her personal experience with me of living with an autoimmune condition that's associated with brain fog. When I asked Sinead to be a guest on Superbrain, she graciously accepted. This explains why we don't chat about her 14 novels in this episode, but instead we have an in-depth conversation about her diagnosis, about her father's sudden death, about losing herself and the importance of sharing stories on the road to finding her happy place again. Sinead, thanks so much for coming in uh, to share your journey uh, with us. I want to dive straight in. I hope you don't mind something that that jumped out at me um, the minute that I read um, your introduction to my RA story was um, when you said how your journey began uh, when your dad dropped dead of a heart attack on holidays in Spain. And that resonated with me so much. My dad dropped dead of a heart attack on his holidays in Galway. Oh, God. I know. So... um, for what it's worth, I understand the additional stressors that that brings on top of a death. Uh, and I wonder if you wouldn't mind kind of yeah, sharing that. Sure. I mean, obviously, it was a shock because he was absolutely fine before he went. But um, it's funny. I mean, at the time, I kind of thought, you know, obviously, we were, we were absolutely devastated. It was a complete shock. But I kind of went to 76. He had a good life. You know, it's not a tragedy. And I suppose I kind of thought I was much 
finer about it than I was. Um, but um, it was mad because he'd had a he'd had a heart attack <clears throat> early on during the week, and I'd gone out because Mum was on her own out there. And then he was absolutely fine. And so I said, okay, I'm going to fly home now. So I was in the airport on the Saturday and I got a call saying, how soon can you get to the hospital? And by the time I got back out of the airport and back to the hospital, he was dead. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of a bit of a shock. And then my sister and brother flew in, but in a really bizarre way, because we were stuck there, it was a bank holiday weekend and we couldn't get the body home. We had this kind of amazing sort of three days, three, four days, just us siblings and mum, which we were never on our own. We were all married with kids. And it was in a way we had this sort of this amazing space to grieve and talk and, you know, talk about dad and funny stories and sad stories. And um, I remember I was desperate to get home and I remember a very wise friend of mine saying to me, look, you know, these are precious days you're never going to get back. And when you get back, it's going to be just so full on, you know, with the funeral and everything. So just try and try and, you know, cherish the, the, the days. And she was right, actually. You know, it was a very special time. I think we did get the space to kind of be on our own and together and grieve. Um, and so in a bizarre way, that was kind of a good thing that he died abroad, although it was horrendous at the time. <laughs> no, I, I, I know. And actually, it was just at a funeral myself yesterday and we were just talking about that, that in Ireland, we have this rush yeah. to bury people. And we were kind of trying to figure out why do we have that? Because we don't live in a hot country. Do you know? Yeah. I mean, that kind of yeah. has to be the case in, in, in certain climates. But yeah. why do we have that? And and I mean, I know that myself. You, you, you're rushing to organise and, and, and arranging everything. And then people are there. And, 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 yeah. and I know for me, sort of after my dad died, it was like about 10 days later, it kind of just, whoa, yeah. kind of hit me with a bang because you'd just been doing so much stuff so I kind of get that yeah. that bit of space but it still must have been a shock or do you, do you think it was a stressful period because then you go on to talk about some um, uh, symptoms that you started yeah, to I mean, experience obviously I obviously was m much more of a shock and then I realised um, I mean almost when I was in Spain uh, during the whole drama um, my knee blew up and I just thought oh, I must have twisted or fallen I didn't really pay any attention and then um, as the months went on, I started to feel really unwell. And two things sort of threw me because one, a friend of mine said to me, oh, a couple of months after kind of shock and grief, you get this kind of funny flu-like symptoms. So I thought, OK, maybe it's that. And then also my mum had had the menopause very early, sort of late 30s, early 40s. So I thought, oh, maybe I'm just getting, you know, the menopause. And, um, you know, the symptoms were just completely exhausted. Like I get 12 hours sleep and I'd wake up shattered. I was freezing all the time, couldn't get warm. My whole body ached all the time. I had no appetite and I'm always hungry, um, which is a real sign something's wrong. And um, my eyes were like, constantly dry and, and, and kind of irritated. And um, then I'd wake up at night drenched in sweat. I mean, like my hair be wet, my pajamas be wet. I'd have pools, little pools in my like belly button. And it was just bizarre. So I thought, oh, God, it's menopause. Yeah, that's grand. OK, fine. Just deal with it. You know, I'm somebody who just like, OK, got something, fix it. So I went to the GP and told her what I had. And she kind of smiled and said, well, let's just take a moment here now and uh, take some blood tests before we decide that you have the menopause. Thank God she was very thorough. And two days later, she rang and she said, you've got to, you've got to go and see a rheumatologist immediately. Your, uh, your uh, inflammatory markers are just off the charts. I'd never heard of a rheumatologist. So I duly went along and I was admitted straight away to hospital. So I, I was really unwell at that point. I didn't realise, I didn't think how unwell I was. So I was in hospital for about 10 days. How did how did that make you feel? First of all, just being told that you had to go straight to a doctor after thinking you were in sort of yeah. a hormonal change. I just <laughs> thought, oh, it'd be fine. Yeah, you'll get me an injection or some pills and I'll be grand, you know. I didn't really think about it. And like 
I planned to be home an hour later and the next thing I was admitted to hospital and then I kind of fell apart then actually I think everything sort of just hit me and I spent most of that most of those 10 days in hospital just crying actually to be honest with you I think I kind of had a little little breakdown or whatever um, or maybe just had the space to just sort of or maybe a normal or maybe a normal response to something really really life changing and and, and stressful absolutely and also um, there was the unknown because they thought it was rheumatoid arthritis but they weren't sure I think I had like 40 blood tests over that week and all these consultants are coming in and asking me if I've been in contact with deer and sheep. And I was thinking, Jesus, no, I don't think so. And then I went, well, I have a cat. Maybe the cat went out and met a sheep. Maybe she put something back. And then you're kind of going, maybe I did, you know, canoe down the Amazon. I just forgot. That kind of went on and on and on. And eventually they did diagnose it. But the strongest memory I have of that time is lying in hospital on the first night. And I remember just looking up at the ceiling and the word terrified just kind of suddenly came across in bright red letters and I remember thinking this is how it feels to feel, to be terrified this is ac- the actual true meaning of the word I never really understood it before I've obviously been scared before I've been frightened but I've never actually known what it's like to be terrified and I was because I didn't know what was wrong with me and I, and I was thinking very dark thoughts so you're diagnosed with something you've never heard of so what do you do you google so I googled and um at that stage, the symptoms had got really bad and I felt like somebody poured petrol over my body and set it on fire. It was The pain was fairly acute, to put it mildly. And I Googled it and it goes, you know, rheumatoid arthritis is a chronic autoimmune condition for which there is no cure. And all you, all you, all you can see is the words, no cure, no cure. And I thought, oh my God, am I going to be living in this level of pain for the rest of my life? Am I going to be able to go for a walk with my kids? Am I going to be able to drive? Am I going to be able to write? Am I going to be able to, you know, have any kind of life? Am I going to be a cripple and, you know, burdened everyone and all these awful kind of thoughts go through your mind um and so for quite a while I was I was frightened because uh terrified because they couldn't get it under control it was very very aggressive and they kept saying acute and aggressive acute and aggressive and they're two words that I now make my skin crawl and then there was like fight fire with fire fight fire with fire so I was put on high levels, such high levels of everything what did they mean by fight fire with fire because they said it was so aggressive they had to like to try and blast it, to try and get it under control. So they were giving me like double injections, like double doses of the chemotherapy drug that's used called methotrexate, which is awful. And then I was on really high doses of steroids all the time. And my pharmacist at one point took me aside and said, look, I'm really concerned about the amount of drugs that you're taking. I, I really think you need to talk to your consultant. And I just, I spent a lot of time standing behind potted plants um, outside different consultants' offices just crying because I, I I was going for second opinions and third opinions because I think it's very important, you know, to get lots of different angles and because we couldn't get it under control, I wanted to see if somebody else had another idea. And and did anyone say to you, because I know, because I'm trying to imagine myself yeah. in that position, well, like, did anyone say or did you dare to ask what would it mean if they didn't get it under control? Well, I remember one consultant going, well, there's one last thing we can try and then we've reached the end of the road. And I remember thinking, end of the road? Like, what does that mean? I mean, like, what does that actually mean? Um, now, on all the drugs, I was functioning. You know, I was able to drive. I was able to I was able to function. But I was, um, you know, going nuts in my head because the steroids are just awful. I mean, they are called medical heroin because they are amazing. I mean, they get you from one minute you're lying in bed in agony, four hours later you're up walking around. I mean, they oh. are incredible. But they also... You can't sleep. You have this weird false sense of energy and you are, it's like somebody walking around scratching nails down a blackboard constantly beside you 24-7. So you're really irritable and that really upset me because I was really short-tempered with my, with my kids and I found that really upsetting. So it's a heightened sensitivity to everything. Yeah. And did it impact on Absolutely. your on your thinking? Like, did you, 
were your thought yeah. process affected? Did, yeah. Is that something that you noticed? Well, it's, it just consumed me. You know, I couldn't. I could. I thought about it all the time. About about or a about and my what, future and right. What is my future and how can I get it under control and. You know, I spent a lot, I mean, I bought books. So I spent hundreds of pounds on books and I, you know, was constantly on looking. They're doing a lot of um, research into it in Scandinavia and they're trying, like, trying to come up with some kind of natural remedies. And I was thinking, God, could I get onto a trial? And it just consumed me. And that kind of went on for um, nearly two years, actually. And then eventually um, they, the, the, the consultant that I liked the most, and that's that's one piece of advice that I would certainly give to people is you have to like your consultant because this is going to be a very long term, uh, you know, relationship. So eventually, I left the consultant I was with, who was horrible and cold, and um, I absolutely hated him. And I went to a very nice, um, empathetic person, and he said, uh, "There's this, you know, kind of cutting edge treatment. We don't do it very often in Ireland, but they inject um, radiation directly into your joints." So I said, "Well." Is, is this my only option? He said, yeah. So um, I went into the nuclear department in Vincent's and I, I, I was terrified. Actually, it wasn't that big a deal. It was just an injection. I mean, the, the process isn't that dramatic or scary, but, you know, they're injecting radiation in to burn the lining of your joint to try and stop it um, from to, 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 from um, blowing, up, blowing up all the time oh, right. yeah, and regenerating. So um, anyway, then you lie still for 48 hours and uh, so that it doesn't move from that spot. And I have to say it worked and that it's that's been three years and, wow. you know, obviously the long term effects may be awful, but I've had three great years and I was able to come off steroids and I've been able to slowly come off methotrexate, which is the, the chemo drug that you have to take. And I got my life back. Wow. Yeah. And uh, that's interesting. I mean, this book, I just I, I just want to kind of mention the book yeah. because this is a book that was um, published just this year yeah. uh, and it's called My My RA Story and it's personal accounts of living with rheumatoid arthritis. Mm. Um, and uh, I asked you, could I, could I have yeah. a copy to read it? Because I, I, I wanted to kind of educate myself a bit. So I had, that, that was that was that was a, something that uh, Arthritis Ireland asked me to get involved in. And I just think it's really important. Yeah. And we got so many. Uh, contributors. Well, I have to say, I, I kind of wanted to read it for research from, yeah. you know, before talking to you and familiarise myself. But actually, um, and I know the book is really sort of probably aimed at people who've just had a diagnosis mm -hmm. and and to help them through. Um, and basically what it is, is each chapter is somebody's story, uh, just like your story That's is right. the introduction. Yeah. Um, but I have to say, having having read it, um, I don't have rheumatoid arthritis, um, but I actually found it a really fascinating read, you know, because it's very personal stories and people are very, very honest. Yeah. And what jumped out at me as well is um, sort of a number of themes in a way mm. emerged, a common themes yeah. through people's stories that I do a lot of work um, across various conditions that 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 uh, impact on the brain um and uh actually i was speaking in, in, in at an event in bucharest at uh, at one point to people with multiple sclerosis and um i stay around afterwards i learn so much from these events i i go and i talk about brain health yeah. but i learn as much from the people there and these were very young people and and one of the one of the people that i met there she'd only been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in january it's a huge huge diagnosis and um she said something similar to a lot of people, what a lot of people have said in this that uh, and what you just said there now, because uh, she was talking to me and she said she found my 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 talk good because it was talking about doing other things in your life. And, yeah. and you know, uh, and 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 she said, Do you know, since January, she said, I haven't th thought about anything else 
except multiple sclerosis, nothing else. And I was saying to her, I said, okay, as a step forward, how about you make Tuesdays for multiple sclerosis and the other days for for other things? And she said, well, you know what, it sounds light, but it just might be a way to kind of compartmentalize it. And and actually throughout that, you said that, that, you know, just now that that aura consumed you. And and this theme that comes out on everybody's um, journey is this sense of losing themselves. And actually, I think being consumed by it is part of that. Yeah. Losing yourself. Yeah. That it's the disease almost consumes you. Does that kind of. Absolutely. But I, I felt my whole personality changed. I mean, I was I wasn't funny. I wasn't fun. I was I was a person at a party you'd run away from. Um, I felt like I was I was a black cloud walking around, right. <laughs> ruining everyone's buzz, and I tried really hard not to be. But you're just, I just, you just, I felt like I'd completely lost my personality. I didn't want to go out because I felt I wasn't contributing anything. Um, I just wanted to just be at home, and yeah, I mean, it's terrible. I, I, I actually felt I lost myself completely. Yeah, and it is such a relief to find myself again you know it really is and that was a journey and um, I mean I went for counselling I could I eventually I said I need to talk to somebody I just have got to deal with this I've got to find a way back to myself and to joy yeah you know? yeah I, I felt like I was flatlining <clears throat> I was just I wasn't particularly joyful I just no, nothing really excited me and I just thought okay I've got to do something about this now the other thing that saved me I would say is my job I write I'm a writer and um you know I tried the meditation I tried which is breathing classes. I tried yoga. I went for long walks. But the only time that I didn't fret, worry and freak out about what I had was when I was writing. And I wrote a book called The Good Mother at kind of the during the year that was, things were really bad. And I um, I really feel that I owe that book so much because I got so much out. And I'm very proud of that book, actually. I think it's probably the best book I've written. And um, it's really interesting. You, you don't you don't realise when you're writing what you're putting in. And when I was interviewed afterwards, one of the journalists said, you know, God, the, the, it's about a little girl who has who has cancer. And she said, God, you know, the hospital scenes are really raw. They're really, they really come to life. And I kind of thought, God, you know, it's obviously because I was putting my own experience into it. So in a way, I think I got a lot out writing that book. And, um, you know, as I say, that for me was my mindfulness. I kind of realized, OK, I can go here. This is my happy place. I can go here and disappear into my book. And those characters were like a warm blanket around me. And so I think I feel very fortunate that I had that. And, you know, obviously... As you say, you have to find a way to distract yourself and to just give your mind a break. You know, in a way, what you're describing there, it sounds like you were kind of stuck, like stuck on the loop yes. where, where where it was just the RA. But then actually what's really interesting as well, you talk about mindfulness and, and um, I actually talk about it in my talks. I can't do the mindfulness thing yeah. myself. I can't do the meditation thing, but it doesn't have to be that. Yeah. Being present in the moment allows you to be in that flow and actually almost allows you find yourself again because you're doing that thing that you're totally absorbed yeah. in for you it, it's writing yeah. uh, for me actually it is it's, it's writing and giving talks and those things but also I have other things that I can do where um, I can't do anything else I think that's the key yes. you have to be totally focused and so for me my other form of sort of meditation or mindfulness is uh, when I work out in the gym because yeah. I have to focus so much you know, if I'm lifting weights yeah. so that I don't hurt my back yeah. another time I found it actually was singing in a choir oh, because yes. if you're singing parts like you just really have to kind of yes. focus on that. So that's what I kind of say to people. Look, mindfulness isn't just about meditation. It can be just about finding that thing. And actually, then often, if you have that thing where you can 
it's kind of odd because you almost say lose yourself in it. Yeah. But in a way, it's probably really finding yourself again, finding finding your flow that it can be it can be anything, but it actually can be the key to get away from something that's hugely, um, yes. hugely stressful. And just and I think just to give your mind a break from the churning and churning yeah. and churning. And then you kind of go, oh, actually, there is more to life than this. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When I launched the the, the book, um, you know, and I met all those people, I kind of went, God, I found my tribe, you know, because when I was first diagnosed, I kind of, I didn't know anybody. I'd never heard of it. I didn't know anybody who had it. And um, so I started, you know, for me, I kept saying information is power, information is power. So I was researching, researching, and then I met, like, I'd say probably 30 people who had it, like friends of friends, cousins, second cousins, mother-in-laws of friends. And everybody was so kind and so lovely and so generous with their time. And I remember thinking, I remember even thinking in hospital, when I come out the other side of this, I'm going to write about it. Um, and I'm going to share my story because I was desperate to, to meet somebody kind of my age who had it and who got it suddenly and who'd always been healthy and just to try and figure out... But one of the things that also helped me move on was I stopped trying to figure out why I got it or how I got it and just tried to figure out how to live the best life with it. You know, because no one knows how you get it. You just have it and you just have to accept it. And I remember another very good friend of mine saying to me, look, you just have to accept it and that'll help you move on. And that was absolutely right. But it is a process that you have to get to. And one of the people I met who actually was the same age as me and got to had been relatively healthy and came out of the blue and all that she lived on her own and like when you have a really bad flare which thankfully I haven't had many of you actually can't move and I remember saying to her like I mean my husband used to have to carry me to the bathroom I remember saying to her like how do you what do you do and she said well she said I rang my brother and by the time he arrived I'd wet the bed she said it's so humiliating she goes but I live on my own I'm single and I I thought god you know I mean it's so tough you know I'm actually I sort of really realised how lucky I am and how tough it is, you know, for some people. But um, I suppose the fact that people were so generous with me, I feel it's really important for me to, to be generous and, 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 and open and frank about it. And, you know, as you say, like the, the mental part is as difficult as the physical part, I found personally. Mm-hmm. And that was a real challenge to me to try and overcome it. And I did find um, talking to somebody really helpful, actually. That's that's really interesting because another thing that jumped out, and I think you kind of say it twice as well, is... Um, 
you say, I think one of the lines is it's a very lonely place. Yeah. Um, and as you said, you had a husband, you have yeah. your kids. Yeah. It sounds like you have great family around Gorgeous you as family, well. Yeah. Um, but the loneliness yeah. is about a, a, a connection with with others who yeah. have the same experience. Absolutely. And the other thing about Ori and a lot of it comes up a lot in all the stories is that you look fine. Yes. You know, there's no like, you know, most of the time you're functioning and you're fine, but you could be in a lot of pain, but you you, you kind of you kind of look OK. Um, and that like a lot of people said to me you know, that they find that really challenging because people are like, but sure, you look great. And you're going to go, but actually, I feel awful. But, you know, the way it's something that the somebody moaning about their health either. And but people, a lot of people said to me that they find that quite difficult in a way. But on the other hand, it's nice to look normal. And at least you can go out and kind of, you know, almost fake it, you know. So there's, I suppose there's two sides to that. Is it good or bad? I, I suppose probably in the long run, probably better. But it is lonely. But it's like anything. It's lonely because you don't know what it's like until you're in it. So it's nobody can really understand. And and so really, it is like in any situation. It's when you meet people who are in the, in the same situation that you can really sort of, um, I suppose, connect um, on, on a different level. And I, I'm kind of interested as well in terms of the loneliness and, and, and the link with stress as well, because mm. both of those actually kind of change our brain and can change how we respond to, to, to situations. And I'm just curious as well, from the loneliness perspective, so I get the bit about one, to share and talk with others but yeah. I also wonder as well and it can happen with stress too that you know in a way and this may not be true but I kind of almost hear it come through from some of the other stories as well and I think one person in particular he said he he, he just split up with his girlfriend and yeah. um, you know and I, I just wonder is it is part of it you just said there you know you don't want to always be moaning about yeah. but you're in constant pain do you think part of it is that that you kind of don't want to be imposing Yes, your suffering and your pain on others. So you're actually put a wall up that yes. makes it harder for people to connect. I mean, absolutely <laughs> spot on. You kind of, I kind of, I kind of created a shell around myself, um, and it was sort of, in a way, my way of just trying to get through it. I kept thinking, if I just need to get through it, just need to get through it, just need to get through it. Um, and yes, I probably, it probably was. But in, but on the other hand, I kind of went, if I if I don't do this, I don't think I can get through this. Mm -hmm. This is the only way I know how is to just give everything I can to being well, give everything I can to getting better, give everything I can to being as functional, normal, as decent a mother, wife, friend, daughter that I can be. But yeah, there, there, there is kind of a shell that comes around you. But in a way, I kind of see it as it's like a protective shell to get you through the worst part. And then I've I'm not I've I've shed it now. So it's an, it almost like you can yes. have a rebirth where you can start yes. breaking through that yes. shell. And I'm interested in that as well in terms of uh, and it, it, it I mean it really there's so many patterns when you read everybody's yes. stories that that this this loss of self um you know this dealing with a whole new future this thinking imagining imagining terrible futures or not knowing how, how mm. the future is which comes up quite a bit in yours because uh, and I might actually just ask you to talk about that mm. um is the panic attacks that 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 you actually started to experience panic mm. attacks that that you'd never had yeah um and that sounded I'm um, it sounded really like because you were imagining all the yeah yeah I mean I've I've I mean I've never I've never been an anxious person ever in my life I've, you know, I've had really good health I've been so blessed but and I, you know and, and I think I hope I'm a more empathetic person as a result of this but yeah I mean I just I suppose 
I mean, panic attacks come in different forms. Um, for me, it was I was just the middle of the night. I woke up at three twenty eight every single night, really? no matter what. I'd like turn around, look at the look at the clock, and it was three twenty eight. Yeah, and then I'd be awake. This was particularly when I was on stairs. I'd be awake for a couple of hours, and I would just freak out because, you know, I remember um, the counselor I went to see a therapist. Um, she said, you know, what's what's your what's your worst fear? And I just went, well, you know being bedridden and in pain and, and a burden like my biggest thing was to be a burden and then that my husband would be stuck with me and my kids have to look after me and that I just wanted you know I literally just wanted to not be a burden to anybody and that was my biggest fear yeah right yeah right and so then you had to focus to focus on no I have to find a way not to be a burden yeah and I think you know we like we're I think we're just very much you know got a problem fix it got a problem fix it and I'm I'm a someone I'm a fixer that's just my my personality and I just I couldn't fix this and I was going okay no 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 I have to be able to fix this mm. and I, you know okay eventually obviously with the help of my consultants we were able I was I now have my life back um and but the great thing is it doesn't consume me anymore it's just part of like I, yeah. inj- I inject myself I try and be as healthy as I can but it's just part of my life I don't really think about it and that's been such a relief mentally do you think there's like is was was that a sort of a gradual thing? Because I do think in a way there has to be a period of 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 grief. And actually, even if you just think about it from your brain perspective, it has to adapt. Yeah. I mean, pain in itself is a stressor. Like so, so your body has to has to put the resources into that, into dealing with the pain. Yeah. You know, with the pain. I mean, your brain's main function, um, in the first instance, is to keep you alive, uh, and it has to do whatever it has to do. Which means that actually other things have to have to take go on the yeah. back burner while that's being sorted out. So, yeah. I think part of that is that that's just going to be the way it is. That you know you have to get to a certain level before you can then start moving on in in terms of uh, who you are and and finding yourself again or finding a new person who's. Yeah maybe learned a lot from the experience because you do hear that coming through yeah um, you know there's there's other people in the book who actually and I've heard this from people with other um other sure. life-changing conditions or yeah. people who've had an accident where they actually say you know actually no I, I actually wouldn't change it because I wouldn't be who I am now mm. without that of course they'd get rid of all the pain and yeah. all that sort of thing <laughs> yeah. but it's still some it, it's a journey that's taken them to almost a new you a, a, a someone that that gets more meaning out of out of life um yeah I mean I think um yeah I think I, I remember sort of when I when I stopped trying to figure out you know how I got it and tried to figure out to live the best life possible with it I think I kind of went, you know, well, like, what have I learned from this and what can I take forward from this? And there is, well, obviously, there's an appreciation of health um, and just more of an, I suppose, more of an appreciation of day to day things. Like I I really don't sweat the small stuff anymore. Um, um, but I, I suppose um, one of the things, remember, that the, the therapist said, I, I remember I couldn't I couldn't handle noise, like I, literally noise any kind of noise or shouting used to set me on edge. And I remember saying to her, you know, what is that? And she said, well, that's actually what happens when you have kind of a, a trauma sounds a bit traumatic, but she kind of said, that's what happens when you have a trauma. She goes, but it is a trauma. Yeah, it is, is a huge yeah. trauma. And I remember it's kind of embarrassed when she said trauma. And then she said, no, no, but that, that's, that's, that's what this kind of is. And that's, that's one of the, one of the things is noise. You, you people become hypersensitive to noise and sounds and stuff. And, um, See, that's, that's interesting. Stress, it, yeah. it, that we talk about stress an awful lot. Stress was actually first um, sort of researched and explored in the context of illness as a response to illness. So um, 
we, we tend to mix up using the word stress for everything. Yeah. But if you think of um, the stressor as the thing mm. that elicits the stress response in your in, in your brain and in your body. So illness was the first stressor in which um, uh, stress, the stress response was um was researched and, and, and we started to see that it does elicit that stress response because you have to fight the you, you have to your body has to fight the illness and it has to shut down on certain functions so that yeah. all the energies can kind of go into it. So it definitely is. It's a, it's a threat. That illness is a threat to your body. But then what can happen is if it's chronic, your stress response itself can become distorted and, and you can elicit a stress response much sooner than you would have in the past. So okay. maybe those noises are yeah. kind of um, you know, stressing you out. But interestingly as well, some of the things thinking over some of the things you've just said as we talk here, one of the um one of the signs of being chronically stressed is is a loss of sense of humor. It's <laughs> <laughs> terrible, I know. And I, yeah. I you know, I, I you know some of my books have also got less funny. <laughs> Hopefully, deeper, deeper as a result. No, but it's but I, I, I remember thinking, oh my God, am I ever gonna be funny again? Am I ever gonna be like, you know, a fun person to be around? I thought my God, I'm going to be a black cloud for the rest of my life. So um, it's been a relief. It's been a relief. But you know what's really, really interesting? Uh, and it kind of fascinated me for, for a while that when you smile, even if it's a fake smile, a synthetic yeah. smile, yeah. Um, smiling boosts feel good hormones. Um, it boosts your immune response. It reduces your blood pressure. Smiling and laughter are actually the natural anti- antidote to to stress and it's kind of funny you know you get to that stage where yeah. you don't feel like smiling yeah. but actually it, it and, and it's a terrible thing to say just smile it'll get better and people go don't you dare say that to me I'm living yeah. through hell but actually it used to it used to bother me how how is the brain that's the most complex structure in the known universe how is it fooled by a fake smile and then actually I it, it dawned on me one day I kind of went oh it's because it's so brilliant it's actually given us a mechanism to boost the release of neurotransmitters and hormones that can actually help us cope better with stress or with illness and with those things. Um, It's just we've started to see smiling as a a reactive thing Mm. that we smile, you know, in response to something else. So I just say, look, keep smiling because, you know, it's kind of contagious, though. Even if you're not living with something, if you smile at someone, they can't help but smile back. So you might be spreading health health benefits to someone else. But uh, it sounds so facetious and it sounds like a terrible thing to say to people who are living through, uh, you know, traumatic incidences. But it actually it actually can really help if you see it as a sort of a natural way to induce um, hormones etc and physiological responses that that can help and that does seem to come back that's that kind of the good side of it it, you know with these stories for for a lot of people eventually kind of coming out the other side which I really think will be very helpful for people not just people with RA but people dealing with any sort of stresses in life that's actually why I would say you know for people it's actually really well worth a read you know you can dip in and out of of chapters and am I right to say that any cost of the book go to arthritis foundation so there you go you're kind of making a donation to charity but also I think from reading the book you kind of can get some really kind of good tips from people's um from people's stories um the other thing that um I wanted to talk about as well that kind of came up um a, a bit as well was a lot of people talk about feeling um that they were no longer in control. Mm. Is that some something that you experienced? Yeah, and that's a huge thing. I think, you know, I think we're, we're, we are all so used to being in control, being out of control. 
we're also we're also used to being in control. I think being out of control is very difficult. I think you know again, like I was saying, you know something's wrong, fix it, and then suddenly you can't fix it. You've got no control. And I remember one of um, my sister had a friend who was a, a rheumatologist. He doesn't doesn't work in Dublin, but he very kindly took a call from me and he said, look, trust your consultant. You know he's an expert. He's he's very good. He knew him. He said he's excellent. You know he's an expert in his field. You just have to trust him because I kept asking questions and questions and Googling and I say driving the poor fellow mad. But he said, you know, you have to trust him. And I kind of thought, God, you know, he's right. I just have to let go because I can't control this. I am not an expert in this, clearly. Um, and I just have to trust him. And that, that was that was another little step that that was kind of important to take because, you know, you can, you know, I, I was living as healthy a life as I could possibly do. And then I just had to, you know, trust that the drugs and, and the recommendations that he was making for the treatment would work. And in fairness, I touch, I'm touching wood here, you know, at the, for the moment it has. So. Yeah. And, and the interesting thing is around control, feelings of loss of control are, are really, you know, part of general generalized anxiety. You know, yeah. it's what if this, what if that? And yeah. I've no control over this. And actually it feeds into itself. And I could see that from your dialogue, the way you wrote about the, the panic, you, yeah. you know, that, that it, it builds and builds and builds. And the fact of the matter is really, if you can control something, do something about it, take action. If you can't, that's actually where the key is. You actually have to accept. And that's not giving in. Yeah. That's actually moving on. Yeah. Uh, and, and and I think that's what, what seems to be key. I mean, you know, in terms of you, that that, that acceptance is like a key point to yeah. get to. But I think it does take a, a while to get there. And then the second thing to me that seems to have been hugely um it like played a huge part in your journey to where you are now is is speaking with other yeah. people. I think it's really important to, yeah, to, to talk to other people because I, as I say, like it is lonely and isolating. I, there isn't, you know, the internet is, is, it's, it's a, it's a kind of good and bad thing. I mean, it's obviously it's good for certain information, but also you're hearing the worst case scenarios a lot of the time. Um, and I just think talking to people also kind of makes you realize, oh God, maybe, you know, they've had a, a really tough time and, you know, maybe my, I'm not so bad and you know I just just people who just understand and I think you know you can keep so much in but sometimes you just really need to talk about it and I just think it's really helpful to talk with people who just totally get it it's and like, do you, like do you think it's it's that as well part that if you're talking to somebody else who has it you're not burdening them. You're not yes. asking them to do anything. It's not changing your relationship with your husband. It's not because I know myself, I hate to be sick. Yeah. I, I just hate it. And I, I hate sympathy. I, I like empathy, you know, yeah. someone to understand. But like, please stop fussing over me. And I just want to get up and get out and yeah. do whatever I want to do. Um, and I think that's part uh, from what I'm hearing from you, that the part of the reason why you didn't want to keep talking about your, yeah. you know, your pain and what you were experiencing but there's none of that if you're talking to someone else it's just comparing notes that's, almost that's actually so true and it's it's that's so true yeah absolutely because you're just yeah you're sharing your experience exactly yeah yeah, yeah. it's so true and um yeah i mean a hundred percent because you know you, you it, it isn't that interesting listening to somebody talking about something that you don't really understand and there's only so much people you know can listen so I do think it is really helpful to talk to other people in a similar situation. Yeah. yeah. And as you say, what you said there is so true. But without obsessing about it either, because I don't think that's okay. that can be, you know, I've kind of come yeah. across that too, where where people then actually almost make their disease their life. So it's like they don't move on. Have, have you kind of come across yes, and that? Yes. And that. That, that was something I was terrified of. I, I remember thinking I have to 
I have to manage this. I have to I have to try and control my mind to stop obsessing about it because I, you know, I have a great life and I need to get back to that life. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah that was yeah. very important. And to I, me. I do think because I think that can be, you know, if your brain will can keep focusing on yeah. what and it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. So that is kind of something um, to, to, to bear in mind. I just in terms of anybody listening and 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 kind of living through something like that, a diagnosis with RA or any, something yeah. else, any anything. What what would be, say, your top three tips or, um, or, or, or advice that you would give? I would say try and find people in similar circumstances. Um, try and find a way to accept what you have and um, try and find a way to distract yourself, like what, what, whether that's your job or joining a choir or if, you know, being in nature is your thing or gardening, whatever it is, try and find something that, lets, that allows you the time for your mind to switch off because it's really important to your mental health, I think. And also know that, you know, it will get better. It will get better, you know, because you will accept it and your life, you will get your life back and your sense of humour will come back, I promise. Thank you so much Thank you. Uh, for sharing that. I This has just been absolutely fun, fascinating conversation. Thanks to Sinead for being a wonderful guest and for sharing her story. I'm sure that it will help many people. I can absolutely vouch for the fact that Sinead's sense of humour has returned and far from being a black cloud, she lights up every room that she enters. Sinead credits speaking to other people affected by rheumatoid arthritis and the social support from them as making a critical difference to her journey back to her happy place. Joanne McNally also spoke of the isolation and loneliness that she experiences as a comedian and how socialising with her friends is essential to her creativity. My first super brain guest, Hilary Fannin, also spoke of the importance of other people and collaboration to the creative process. Tune in on Thursday for your super brain booster shot, where I'll be talking in depth about loneliness and the importance of social connection. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.